about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. So from chapter 11, page 1222. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told... Go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count the worshippers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it was given. It has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the city, the holy city, for forty-two months. And I will give you, uh, and I will give power to two witnesses, and they will prophesy for one thousand two hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts, because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Now, when I, when I named this series Reimagining Public Faith, I didn't realize that I was actually being pulled subtly into uh, some sort of fad across our entire city at the moment. I'm really sorry about that. I don't like to be kind of fad controlled. But we talk about reimagining public faith, and literally I named it that. And the next day I went on my run, and I saw that Mervac is reimagining stuff too down at Australian Technology Park, Reimagine Urban Life. 
I run past that all the time, apparently. Sydney Uni, when I ran through Sydney Uni, they have this unlearned thing happening, unlearned career path, unlearned various things. And what their tagline is, is we've reimagined the way we teach. And then, of course, Hugh Mackay's book, Australia, reimagined that I had to buy after I named this series that. Apparently, across Sydney at the moment, we're in this phase of reimagination of everything. So there you go. Um, this came really to head to me when I was reading uh, an article about uh, our state treasurer, Dominic, um, when he was kind of envisaging what life might be like in Sydney in 20 years' time. Really interesting little article. Go find it. Uh, it was a, about a few weeks ago in the, uh, the, the Herald. And he talks about how when his little girl is, is 21 years old, it'll be 2039, and, and Sydney will be 7 million people. And if Lucy Turnbull has her way, it'll be a metropolis from the harbour all the way to the base of the mountains. Uh, and it's really interesting doing this task of imagining what Sydney might be like in that time and at that stage and what it's going to look like for us to evolve from where we are here to there. What it got me thinking is, I wonder what place faith will have in this city in 20 years. And as I asked that question, it got me thinking, you know what, I don't think we really know what our place is in Sydney right today, let alone how on earth it could be different or how we could grow in the evolution of this city to 20 years into the future. I think at the moment, as Christians in this city, we are generally just very confused about what on earth it means to be a public Christian. We kind of think, ah, oh, public Christian, you've got to vote for the right person uh, you've got to be honest at work, and you've got to tell people about Jesus. And those three things are really true, but it's just that most of your life is not about those three things. It kind of means that most of your life isn't about public faith at all. We think about public faith as those uh, Christian speakers on TV or who, who kind of pull crowds or write articles, and they're quite winsome or nuanced and be- say beautiful things. Or those Christians who are in the public who aren't nuanced and subtle, and they say the wrong thing and get slammed. And we think, I'm not like the nuanced, intelligent person, and I am not like, I do not want to cop the fallout of the other, and so I guess I don't have a place in this city. I want to take you on a journey the next few weeks. I think Jesus Christ wants to tell you that there is much more that could happen in the next 20 years of your life in your public spaces than you can imagine. And I'm not talking about adding stuff on to what you already do. I'm talking about your nine to five. I'm talking about your soccer club. I'm talking about your apartment building. I'm talking about your local barista. I'm talking about the spheres that he has already given you to do life within. And I want you to walk with them for a few weeks and imagine for a second what it means to be a public Christian in all the areas of your life. And I want to start today really simply. One thing. The Christian life is inescapably political. The Christian life is inescapably political and public. Either you don't really know who Jesus is, or you've misunderstood something, if that is not true. So I want to induct you into that as kind of the first step this evening. And the way we're going to do that is look at Revelation 1 Revelation 11. Uh, 
And I want to tell you three things about Jesus and politics as a way of getting started. The first one comes from Revelation 1, the next two from Revelation 11, which is, in my opinion, the weirdest chapter in possibly the whole Bible. So we'll get to that. First of all, Revelation 1, and here's the first thing. Jesus wants to reshape your political imagination. Jesus wants to reshape your political imagination. I know that because he gave you the book of Revelation. You see how Revelation 1 verse 1 starts? It says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. God the Father gives the revelation to God the Son, and God the Son gives it to John, and John in the power of the Spirit writes it out for us as the inspired word of God. But it is Jesus who gives it to us because he thinks we need it. That word revelation, we get from that the word kind of apocalypse, which doesn't mean zombies. It means just to uncover something, to pull the veil off it, to explain it, to make sense of it, to see what is behind it. And in verse 19, Jesus says of the book of Revelation, write therefore what you have seen And he describes it as what is now and what will take place later. What Jesus thinks is in this book is an unveiling of life as it is in our world and of life as it will be later. And and what Revelation does is it doesn't unpack or unveil these things with kind of a beautiful logical essay, like some of you are going to write this week in your exams, you know, beautiful logic, really clear. Uh, You know, uh, it's not a pretty poem. It's not a historical narrative. The way that uh, it happens in Revelation is, is that it's a book full of really disturbing, very vivid images. And the images are there to kind of be pushed up against you and to confront you and to kind of deconstruct your vision of the world. I think reading Revelation is kind of like drinking a really nice glass of red wine and then sculling a Red Bull. That's kind of what the experience of reading Revelation is like, you know. Uh, it's, it's, it cleanses the palate, but not of your throat, but of your imagination. Uh, Richard Borkham, who's a really interesting New Testament scholar who I've walked with a little bit, his book on Revelation is really good. He says, the visual power of the book of Revelation affects a kind of purging of the imagination, refurbishing it with alternative visions of how the world is and will be. It's kind of like uh, this whole spate of horror films that is happening at the moment. Now, I don't like horror films. I once had a nightmare after watching a trailer for a horror film. So I don't really do that kind of thing. But people who are experts tell me that there's a really interesting set of horror films that have come out in the last year. And these are really interesting films because their themes are so ordinary. You know, Get Out kind of talks about race. A Quiet Place in Hereditary, they have these uh, meditations on uh, social economic inequality and basically bad parenting. And the way these films get you to kind of own up to the realities of the world is by terrifying you with vivid monster image things. (laughs) You know, that is exactly what Revelation does. It throws vivid imagery at you as a way of getting you to rethink, reimagine the world that you see around you. 
And the content of Revelation is inescapably political. Because that's what the Christians of the day were facing. They were facing the assailant, masterful Rome. All-conquering military and economic might. People didn't just respect Rome, they loved her. Because she made everyone wealthy. And before this dominant force, we hear in verse 9 that John and his brothers and companions are suffering as a result of what is happening. And to them it must have seemed like there was no other reality but Rome. But Revelation opens with what? With one very massive image. It's a picture of Jesus Christ in verses 12 to 16. And it's kind of like a Frankenstein Christ. He has white hair, blazing eyes, bronze feet. His voice sounds like a river. He has a, a tongue that is a sword. And his face is bright like the sun. It's, it's, John is so scared at what he sees that he plays dead like he's got a bear before him. What Revelation opens with is Rome is not assailant. Rome is not in control. Jesus Christ is first and last, the living one who is dead and behold is alive forever, who holds the key of death and hate. Revelation is intensely political. It's about the fact that Jesus is the center of the universe rather than Rome. And that picture of Christ kind of stands at the beginning of Revelation kind of as, as, a, as a challenge to us a little bit. To check our own political assumptions a little bit at the door as we walk into the book. Because it is Jesus who will dictate what the world is like and what it is for and where it is headed rather than us, rather than our notions of how politics works and our place in society. I don't know what kind of ideas you have of kind of a fearful retreat from culture or whether you think Christianity should be unleashed like an all-conquering force. Jesus wants you to reimagine politically your public life through revelation. That's the first thing. But the reason we get from chapter 11 about why we need to rethink things and reimagine them politically is that the good news, this is the second thing, the good news about Jesus is political. Have a look at chapter 11, verse 15. There's a call and response in the back of chapter 11. We'll get to the first half in in a minute. But an angel calls from heaven and talks about a historical moment that is coming on the world and says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. This speaks of a a future moment when Jesus Christ comes back and all of a sudden it's not a world filled with many governments, many kingdoms, but all of a sudden a, a world ruled by one king. A world without a North Korean government or an American democracy or an African dictator or a British parliament, all of them dissolved before who? Before Jesus Christ who takes up 
all of their kingdoms under his. You see, the world is headed for monarchy. A real historical reality of Jesus reigning over all things. This is not just a spiritual vision. It is a political statement about how every power on this earth only has a limited time before he comes. Now to those who hear this in heaven, in verse 17, they respond with praise and thanksgiving. To them, this is intensely good news. They say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. But then it gets a bit less comfortable. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets. You see, on one level, we can start to understand how some of these evil dictators and things getting pulled down as good news. But then when you talk about this idea of judgment, that judgment is the moment in which Jesus takes up his kingship, all of a sudden it starts to taste a little bit bitter, doesn't it? But I actually think we as a generation get this well. Let me show you. This graffiti is up at McDonaldtown Station at the moment. Uh, I don't, I, tell me if you've seen this anywhere else. I think it's a, I've seen it somewhere else, but I can't remember where. Now, if you can't see this, this is the Death Star from Star Wars. If you're not sure what that is, I, I don't know how to help you, but you know. And the Death Star is covered with globalized corporations who are basically corrupt and evil. For example, Disney. No. Uh, FIFA and Shell and Coca-Cola and Subway and Walmart. Now, it's a picture of the fact that these great, big, giant, that institutions are destroying the universe, effectively. Uh, it's a picture of our generation's view of most people who hold that kind of high-up power. We get the fact that often this comes at the expense of the poor, at the expense of the earth, and the expense of women. And as a generation, we look at it and we say, no more, no more. No more grubby CEOs at the top of buildings whose, whose power masks their crimes. And I think when we look at the end of verse 18, we find ourselves actually agreeing with what is happening. Because the wrath that comes from Jesus Christ is for destroying those who do what? Who destroy the earth. Jesus enacts a judgment against the things that we know are broken. And that we hate. This is ultimately good news. A day is coming when there will be no building tall enough, no bank account large enough, no jet fast enough for any person in power to hide behind the crimes that they have done either against women or against the earth, or against the poor, they will be called to account and their power pulled down by the reigning King Jesus. This is good political news about the future. And it is the future that belongs to Jesus Christ. His coming. 
The problem is that we love the bit about the institutions, but we don't love the bit where it includes our little kingdom, our little abuses of power, our little abuses of the poor, of the people around us, that even our little kingdom gets pulled down by Christ, that only his remains. It is good news, but it is hard news. Well, what does this coming reign of Christ mean for us as God's people? And this is the third thing that really situates us and helps us understand our place in the world. And that's that we as God's church are actually political witnesses. We are a prophetic voice announcing the coming of the Christ. You see this in the really strange first half of chapter 11 which I think is the strangest part in all of Revelation. But it actually, when you, when you zoom out and you look at the, the, the big picture of what's happening, it, it's actually quite clear that there's two witnesses, and you needed two because that's how you had a legal case in the ancient world. You needed two witnesses. And these uh, witnesses have like all of the prophetic superpowers of the Old Testament in them. They're kind of like the captain planet of prophets. If you're too young to know that reference... Get on YouTube later. You'll have fun. Now, when you look at the references and the way they're described, you see all these kind of hat tips to different prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, The olive trees and the lampstands were in Zechariah the prophet. Fire from a mouth or from heaven and and the the sky being shut up comes from Elijah. Uh, The turning of water into blood and the striking of the earth with plagues. Well, that's Moses. And, and at the very beginning when the city is measured, that's out of Ezekiel. So you have all these prophetic references kind of showing that these, these are two like super prophets. They have all of the power of Moses and Elijah and Zechariah and Ezekiel in spades. They are the ultimate prophetic force. And you know who they're talking about? What this passage is about? It's about the church. This is set in the time before when Jesus comes and after he has been on earth. It is in the age of the church. You are the Captain Planet prophet. The final announcement empowered by God to witness to the coming of the Christ. But do you notice what happens in verse 7? The witnesses get mauled by a beast and then their bodies get left publicly unburied. So much so that people from all over the earth can walk by the manjir and give each other gifts, which is strange. It's an interesting moment. You think, what is happening? And then a moment later, you hear that they're given breath again. They come back to life. They go up to heaven. You're like, this is a really strange story. What are these witnesses about? It's interesting because you don't hear anything about what they prophesy about. But you do get to watch them die. What are we, what are we learning here? What's the job of these witnesses? Their job is to embody on the streets of a big public city, the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's why it's marked out that they died where? At the place where their Lord was crucified. Their death and their resurrection is an echo of his. 
of the coming Christ who died and rose again to become king of the world. You see, that's what it means to be the church. To embody the death and resurrection of Jesus in every sphere of life until he comes again. Not just speaking about it, but embodying it in the Spirit's power. Jesus wants us to worship ourselves to death in the public space of every city on the planet. To the point of cost. Now, what does this mean? What am I talking about? Well, I'm going to unpack it over three weeks, so give me a little bit of a break. But here are two things. Two things straight away. What does this mean for us? What does this look like? The first thing is this. You are not a secret agent. You are a public prophet. I meet so many Christians who in the most important public spheres of their life are secret agents. They kind of like pretend to do one thing by day and then kind of do hit jobs where they preach the gospel every now and again, you know. They're there kind of doing their accounting work or whatever and, you know, they're kind of Jesus every now and then. They're kind of undercover in our city trying to pop up at the right moment to let people know about Jesus. And I get the fact that we need to speak at the right moment, but that's not who we are. We're not secret agents. We're public prophets. You know, you aren't a banker. You're a prophetic banker. You're not an educator. You're a prophetic educator. You're not an architect. You're a prophetic architect. You're not a doctor. You're a prophetic doctor. You're not a student. You're a prophetic student. You're someone who is being divinely empowered to embody the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the stuff of your life. Let, let me tell you what that means. Um, Emilio, some people know Emilio Cristiani, a uh, great Christian photographer. He, I lo- he's just such a gentle, loving guy. I really like him. Uh, he, he, wrote, he took this photo just recently in um, uh, the back of a black, uh, in Blacktown car yard. And he took this shot because he's like, Matt, I saw, I saw the gospel in this shot. The dark frame of the car, the shattered windscreen, a world broken beyond repair, but through the glass, the clouds and the sky and the stars. I see a world dying that will come back to life in this photo. You see what he's doing? He's not taking a photo so he can explain the gospel. He, as an artist, has embodied in his art the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this photo is now a public witness to the reality of the gospel built into our city. You know, I've got a friend who works on a construction site, and him and the person he he works with to manage the site, completely different. One is, you know, uh, brutal. But, But he's a Christian. And the people working between them, they see the difference between him who's, who's servant-hearted and clear and gentle and kind but firm and getting things done and, and someone who's brutal all the time and even a bully. And they look at my friend and they go, there is something in you and about you. They taste in him the death and resurrection of Jesus embodied 
on a construction site in Sydney. You see, you are not a secret agent. You are a public prophet, and it's time to take up the tools of your craft. Whatever it is, whatever sphere of life Jesus has given you, whatever soccer club he's placed you in, whatever art form he's given you, all of it, all of those 20 years of life that he's given you in the next in Sydney is to build a prophetic witness to the coming of Jesus. You are not a secret agent. You are a public prophet. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. You need to rebel weekly by going to church. If you flick through the book of Revelation, you'll see in all the different parts, these bits that are centered. You know what they are? They're songs. The book of Revelation is filled with people singing, filled with people worshiping God. Because that's the best response to the reality of what's happening in Jesus. It's the way you get it to drip into your imagination. But it's more than that. When we gather together and we lift up Jesus as the Christ on our lips, do you know what we say to every CEO who has no concern for the poor, to every unjust economic system, to, to every Hollywood producer who would use women? Do you know what we say when we sing together as God's people? We say, your time is at an end. When we lift up the name of Jesus, we join the most radical rebellion in human history that denounces every unjust, ungainly power across the whole planet and gives them their time limit before Jesus Christ returns. When you come to church, it's not for you. It's not for even the person next to you. It's for the world. This is a public prophetic witness. That Jesus is coming. And the powers that think they are in control are not. Be the public prophet. Come to church and rebel. But the thing that's going to stop you from both those things is fear. You know what happens in the first chapter of Revelation? John gets afraid. Before Frankenstein Jesus. Because, let's be honest, that's what would happen. He falls on the ground as though dead. And you know what happens next? Jesus comes, touches his arm, says what? Do not be afraid. If there's anyone in the whole universe you want to be afraid of, it's actually Jesus Christ. Because he's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who will dissolve the world powers and make them his kingdom. But he touches John and says, you don't need to be afraid. Why? Because Jesus Christ bore your wrath on the cross for you already. Your greatest fear, him, is dealt with. And when your heart gets that, there is no other petty power in this world that will take your courage from you. So do not be afraid. Take up the tools of your trade and rebel. Let me pray. I'm going to invite the band up as I pray. Oh, Father, we, we hear your voice in Revelation this evening. Uh, We see Jesus Christ before us, crucified, risen, ascended, King of all, coming maybe tomorrow, maybe tonight. And we stand in awe of him who bore our wrath. And we ask for you to empower us this evening with a new imagination for the task you have laid at the feet of your church. 
to be a prophetic voice calling in the darkness of the light of your coming. Enable us to see the things before us that you've set in our hands already and empower us to worship even to the point of death on the streets of this city, Sydney, to the glory of your name. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.